I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live, and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, may I be your megaphone this afternoon, an instrument that you speak through, that the words that come out of my mouth will be your words and not my own, and that the Holy Spirit will go before me and prepare a fertile ground of the hearts and minds of those that are listening. <clears throat> Have your will and your way in our hearts, Lord, for we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. So today is uh, what's called Shimini Eretz, which means the eighth day, which this is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it is a holy convocation, a holy meeting. And so we are fulfilling that commandment here and now. But what happens in synagogues all around the world uh, during um, Shimini Eretz is that the last part of the Torah is read and the scroll is rolled up or rolled back to the beginning. Uh, so a, a new Torah cycle takes place. And so right now, all over the world, that's happening in synagogues uh, across the world. Now, not only does that happen, but in Israel, there's a holiday that's morphed into Shemini Eretz called Simchat Torah. And it's called the joy in the Torah. And it's usually celebrated in the diaspora the day after Shemini Eretz. So in synagogues outside of Israel tomorrow, they will be taking the Torah scroll out of the ark. And they're going to actually literally dance around the synagogue with the scroll. Now, a lot of Christians get a misunderstanding and they think that they're worshiping the Torah scroll. They're not. They're acknowledging that this is the word of God, the, the revelation and the word of God. The Torah scroll is dressed in a nice velvet case. It's got a uh, the priestly breastplate on it. And it also has crowns on the scrolls on the top. So they're saying, okay, this is the king's law, and we're honoring the king, and it's God's word that makes us happy, and it's God's word that brings us joy. So they're actually literally going to be dancing around the entire synagogue with the Torah scroll, and it is a very beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Uh, so it's also Shemini Eretz, the eighth day, and Simchat Torah, the joy in the Torah. So we're going to be finishing out the Torah portion for this year, and... Uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33. So the Torah portion is Vezot uh, Habarecha, which means this is the blessing. So this is the last day of Moses' life. This is his last words before he climbs the mountain and passes away and the Lord takes his soul. And last words are very important. You know, usually uh, you'll see on movies where uh, a cowboy will get the bad guy and he's about ready to shoot him. And he's like, hey, any last words? Or they're getting ready to be strung up and they say, any last words? And uh, they usually have something to say or they won't say anything at all. But last words are very important. And a lot of people have their last words on a piece of paper called the last will and testament. 
In other words, this is what I want my family and friends to know, and I give this to so-and-so, I give that to so-and-so, and this is what I want them to know and understand, and it's people's last words. So last words are very important, and they reveal a lot about a person's soul, about a person's condition. So here's a few famous last words from people. There's a blues singer, uh, Bessie Smith, and uh, what she said, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Kind of shows where Bessie's heart was as a blues singer. Harriet Tubman, which is sometimes called the Black Moses or Mother Moses or the Female Moses because she's the one who had the Underground Railroad during the slave trade and was able to lead a lot of uh, slaves to freedom. She waxes almost uh, Pauline, uh, like one of the epistles of Paul, in what she said, what her last words were. She said, give my love to the churches. Tell the women to stand firm. I go to prepare a place for you. Borrows a little bit from Paul, borrows a little bit from Jesus. Pretty powerful last words. Uh, William Henry Seward was a U.S. Secretary of State, and his last words were, nothing, only love one another. And that is the, the, basically the law summed up in one word, love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Nothing, only love one another. And we know that scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Sir Isaac Newton, he was a famous scientist. Uh, a lot of people think he created gravity. No, he, he, dis he discovered the properties of gravity. Uh, for some reason, uh, the coyote and roadrunner didn't get the memo on that. Right? We always see him running off cliffs and standing in midair. But Sir Isaac Newton was not just only a scientist. He was a creationist. He believed in the creation, and he didn't think that the creation of the world uh, opposed science whatsoever. He believed that the creation revealed true science. He was a devout Christian, and this is what he said before he died. The great ocean of truth lay all uncovered before me. So he spent his whole lifetime looking into the word of God and trying to figure out the word of God from a scientific standpoint having science backing up scripture. And there's a lot of stuff that he didn't know when he was dying. And he realized, I'm gonna know it all now. I'm going to know everything. And he said, the great ocean of truth lay all uncovered before me. All the things he wanted to know was about to be revealed to him. Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the painter, not the turtle. Um, Leonardo, he said, and I thought this was very interesting. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Can you imagine? He lay on his back painting the Sistine Chapel. For years. For years, yeah. Uh, he did sculptures and paintings. He had a lot of inventions. And yet he said, I offended God and mankind. Why? because I did something wrong, I, you know. No, because my work did not reach the quality it should have. He was his worst critic. He's like, you know what? I still could have done a little bit better. Sounds to me like he was a perfectionist. Now, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he is the one who wrote all the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. And uh, this is what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said to his wife before he died. He said, you're wonderful. Do you imagine that be your husband's last words? You married ladies, you're wonderful. And he passed away. Uh, Michael Landon, Little House on the Prairie and Highway to Heaven, he said, you're right. 
It's time. I love you all. And uh, Groucho Marx, this is what he said before he died. He said, this is no way to live. <laughs> of course, he had to go out with some sort of a, a pithy quip, right? This is no place to live. Now, you remember Barney Miller? Yeah. You remember uh, the, the, the guy who always made the coffee? He was the Asian guy. Uh, no, oh, no uh, not fish. Yeah, not fish, but the, the Asian guy who always uh, made yeah. the coffee. Well, he died. Huh? I forget his name. Yeah. yeah, the name's slipping my mind at this moment, too. Uh, his real name is Jack So, and he was in a lot of shows, a lot of movies. But uh, this is what he said before he died, and he was referring back to the Barney Miller show. He said, uh, it must have been the coffee. <laughs> uh, Pistol Pete Maravich. Many would argue that Pistol Pete Maravich was better than Michael Jordan and better than LeBron James. You know, I'm not going to get into that debate or battle, but this is what he said before he died. I feel great. Wow. Bo Diddley. All right, the blues guy, Bo Diddley. Yeah, if you don't know Bo, you don't know Diddley. Bo Diddley, he died while listening to the song Walk Around Heaven. And his last words were, wow. Todd uh, Beamer, he was on the 9-11 uh, Flight 93. His famous last words were, let's roll. Basically, we're going to save some lives. We're not going to let this happen on our watch. Frank Sinatra, before he died, he said, I'm losing it. You could take that many ways. I'm losing it. W.C. Fields, probably one of the most sarcastic comedians, maybe besides Mark Twain himself, um, he was caught reading the Bible on his deathbed. And somebody asked, what are you, what are you doing? Because he was never a religious man, never read the Bible. This is what he said before he died. I'm looking for loopholes. I'm looking for loopholes. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, Mr. Spock, he was, he was Jewish, yep. His last words were the letters L-L-A-P, and that stands for live long and prosper. That's, those were his last words, L-L-A-P, live long and prosper. So last words are important. They reveal the most important thing to you, and it reveals where your heart is. Moses gave a last prophetic blessing to each and every tri tribe regarding what's going to happen to them in the end times. So if you want to know what happens to all the different tribes, even the ones that are considered lost, read these blessings that Moses gave over the tribes, and you will get a hint or an idea of where they're going to be at, what they're going to be doing, and what's going to happen to them at the end of time. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So Moses' last words uh, were very prophetic, but they were also a blessing. And then he kind of summed it up uh, with, with a blessing for everybody collectively. And I would argue that we can kind of add ourselves into that blessing for those who aren't Jewish and those who have accepted Yeshua the Messiah as their personal Lord and Savior. They have been grafted in uh, to the cultivated olive tree of Israel, the wild olive branch being cultivated into the uh, olive tree of Israel. So I believe that these words apply to us. So in Deuteronomy chapter 33, uh, beginning with verse 26, There is none like God, Jeshurun, 
Jeshurun was kind of a, 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 a slang name or a kind of a term of endearment name that represented Israel itself collectively. There is none like God, Jeshurun, riding through the heavens to your aid and through the skies in his majesty. Israel is under terrorist attack as we speak. And the last, some of the last words that are being read in synagogue today are these very words. And it's a promise to Israel that they will always be protected, that God will always come to their aid. Riding through the heavens to your aid and through the skies in his majesty. There have been reports of enemies of Israel. And this has been documented in newspapers where the enemies that were lobbing missiles at Israel literally said, we saw angels batting our missiles out of the air. It's not just the Iron Dome protective system that Israel got set up that protects Israel, but God literally himself sends his angels to guard Israel. Can you imagine Arab Muslims? saying, we saw angels batting these missiles out of the air as we were launching them at Israel. Riding through the heavens to your aid and through the skies in his majesty. A refuge is the ancient God. Underneath are everlasting arms. There's no worse sensation than, than that of falling. When you're falling and you, you don't know what's underneath you. You know, maybe you're navigating stairs in the dark and you misstep and the step's not where it should be and you fall and you have that feeling, oh no, because you don't know when or where you're going to land or where your foot's going to be. Or, you know, walking in the dark and you fall into a, a ditch or a hole because you didn't see it and the feeling that it has. But it says, a refuge is the ancient God and underneath are his everlasting arms. Doesn't matter if we fall or if Israel falls, God will be there to catch them. And God is there with his arms underneath Israel right now, catching them as they feel like they're falling. And they're reading these words today in synagogues all over the world. Could you imagine what a peace of mind that is, a reminder to them that the enemy says, you know what, your God is weak. Your God is, is not powerful. They may be even shouting, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. You know, our God is great. Our God is great. Which is, that's in Arabic. But do you know what Allah Akbar is in Hebrew? Probably get in trouble for this. It's our God is a rat. Which shows you that Allah is not the same as Yahweh. No matter how many people would like to say that or claim that. Now the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, therefore they are Abraham's children as well. And they too are blessed and will be blessed. But they will never prevail against the sons of Isaac. Abraham's son Isaac. There is none like God, Jeshurun, riding through the heavens to your aid and through the skies in his majesty. A refuge, refuge means it's a place of protection. A refuge is the ancient God and underneath are everlasting arms. Kind of reminds me of when Superman, uh, when Lois was, was, I think, was she thrown off the building or something and Superman catches her? Mm -hmm. You know, just those, reminds me of the everlasting arms. You know, nothing was going to stop Superman from saving his woman. He drove out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So, Lord, we pray that these words will be true today as Israel is under attack. Because your word says, he drove out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So I just pray, Father, that you would just push back the enemy 
that's attacking Israel right now. Push them back. Send your angels to bat the missiles out of the way. Send your angels to escort and confuse the, the terrorists that are maybe doing suicide bombings, whatever, that they won't even be able to touch your children, your people. And I pray that when Israel retaliates, they will be able to destroy so as to, to keep their land safe. Verse 28 says, so Israel rest in safety. Untroubled is Jacob's fountain in a land with grain and new wine. Yes, his heavens drip dew. So even though they're literally under attack right now, they can rest in safety knowing that God is protecting them as we speak. Doesn't mean there's not going to be loss of life. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be any tragedy. But, there are, but you're not going to be able to drive Israel into the sea as, as was vowed by Israel's enemies. We'll drive them into the sea. It's never going to happen. You're, you're never going to get rid of the state of Israel. And even though Israel is the size of the state of New Jersey, one day they will own the entire promised land in the millennial kingdom, and it will span part of all of the Arab, virtually all of the Arab countries. So Israel rests in safety. Untroubled is Jacob's fountain. You know, these words are probably being read right now by the Israeli Defense Force soldiers that are on the front lines, that are in their fatigues, and They've got their guns slung on their backs, and they're probably in the midst of warfare right now. And yet these words are probably resounding in their ears. So Israel rest in safety, untroubled is Jacob's fountain, in a land of grain and new wine. Yes, his heavens drip dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Adonai, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies will cower before you, and you will trample on their backs. Israel has always been outgunned, has always been outnumbered. And even when all of the surrounding enemy states around them unite together and attack at once, they still can't defeat little itty-bitty Israel. That's a miracle. That's just as miraculous as God escorting millions of people through the desert to the promised land. Humanly, it's impossible. But God sheltered them with a cloud by day and the fire by night, manna from heaven, water from a rock, quail from the sky. So Israel is being protected right now, and this is what's happening. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Adonai, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies will cower before you. What do you call a group of people ganging up on one person? Cowards. Cowards. I mean, it's, if, it's, if you think it's a fair fight, it'd be one-on-one. -on -one. But we're talking about nations. We're talking about different uh, terrorist groups. Why do they fear Israel so much? But it says, your enemies will cower before you, and you will trample on their backs. They will win. They will get the victory. No matter who's in charge of what country in the world, and no matter which country in the world's against them, you can have the whole world gang up on Israel. And God in Israel makes a majority. Did you ask Chris why they hate Israel, or why they fear Israel? That's that's a that's a whole other sermon, whole other lesson. I mean, there's multiple reasons. 
we don't even have time to even scratch the surface oh, or, or is that what you asked get. Me? No, 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 huh? Is that what you just asked? No, 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 no. I'm just. It's like you know, why are they so afraid of them? You know, like why a bully? You know, why are bullies afraid? Because they know they're powerful. That's why bullies attack and they attack in numbers because they're they lack something that whoever they're attacking has. And they know that they're God's chosen. Yeah. So those are Moses' last words, which ironically, today, with the holiday and with the attacks that are happening in Israel right now, are more pertinent and relevant and meaningful than ever before. But Israel's Messiah, Yeshua, we ought to look into his last words and what his last words were. So in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting with verse 38. John, uh, John 19, I'm sorry, did I say 13? Okay, John 19. Uh, let's go to 28, not 38. Let's go to 28. 28. After this, when Yeshua knew that all things were now complete, to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they put it on a sponge soaked uh, with a sour wine and on a hyssop branch and brought it to his mouth. When Yeshua tasted the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. Those were his last words in the corruptible mortal body. And that's even the wrong term to use. Just I'm just saying that Yeshua was able to die. In a human body, he was able to die. But the scriptures prophesy that his body will not see corruption. It will not decay. It will not corrupt. We know that he raised from the dead. It is finished. And that word, it is finished, was actually worded like it was a legal transaction it, you could basically say instead of it is finished you could say paid in full paid in full what was paid in full our sin debt our sin debt that we could never repay by our good works our sin debt that we cannot even repay by spending eternity in hell but he paid the price he paid it all and that was his last words it is finished paid in full what powerful last words for anybody to say. It is finished. It's completed. The prophecy has been fulfilled. It is finished. Paid in full. Another one of Yeshua's last words is in Matthew chapter 28. Now these are his last words after he rose from the dead. And he was about ready to ascend to the Father and sit at his right hand. These are his last words. Not only to his disciples, to the twelve, but to us sitting here today. And Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Yeshua had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some wavered. And Yeshua came up to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why the demons were so scared. Because they were following the dictates of the God of this world. Because when Adam sinned, 
the authority of the world went from man to Satan. He's the one who has the power and the authority over this world. And the whole purpose of the things that Yeshua did through his life was a message, a resounding message to, to Satan, to the demons of hell, that you know what? This world is mine and I'm taking it back. I'm in the process of restoring it and taking it back. And that's why he says, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. As a result, now that I'm in control, spiritually speaking, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. I think that's interesting because the church has it backwards. The church doesn't want to go. The church hasn't gone. But I'll tell you who is going. The Jehovah's Witnesses are going. They're going every Tuesday knocking on doors. I know the Mormons on their bicycles and men in black suits. I don't know what day they usually roll, but they're going door to door too. But yet, modern day churches says that doesn't work anymore. You can't win people to the Lord that way. Really? Then why is Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness growing? Because they're doing the hard footwork. They're willing to be rejected. They're willing to be made fun of. They're willing to have dogs sicked on them. They're willing to get the door slammed in their face. We're not. Because we're making the lame excuse. doesn't work anymore. I'll just invite my loved one to church. I'll just invite my friend to church. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But church is not for the lost. Church is for the saved. That's why we're here getting fed off the word. And if they come, they're going to be under great influence of the word. And if they stay long enough, they'll likely get saved and accept Yeshua. But that's not the way that the Lord told us to do it. He didn't say, and, you know, and have them come into church, therefore. No, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples, make students of all nations, immersing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Those are the last words of Yeshua. And the next thing that we're going to hear from Yeshua when he returns is that authoritative shout that he's returned. So what, what, what did Israel do with these last words? Israel was haunted by these last words when they were in exile, realizing they messed up and screwed up. And uh, those last words were able to help them focus and bring them back to repentance and back to obedience under the Lord God of Israel. And they were led back from Babylonian captivity. So last words are important. You know, it's kind of like somebody's last wishes. Are you going to help somebody fulfill their last wishes? Why? How are they going to know they're dead? They're in the ground. But yet last words are so important to us and we take them so seriously that if a loved one says, promise me you'll do this when I'm gone. Those are pretty powerful. They're never going to know if you did it or not. They're, they're dead. But yet to honor them. Now, Yeshua is alive and well. He's been resurrected. And, and you know, our loved ones, they're in heaven with him right now, the ones who've accepted him. So Israel, with, with the last words of Moses, took it very seriously. They did only after they were punished. They didn't at first. But us, do we have to be punished before we take the Lord's last word seriously? Because Peter tells us judgment comes first to the house of God. 
And if it comes to us, how much more is it going to come to those who don't believe? It's going to be worse for them. We're sitting here waiting for God to judge the world. But he hasn't judged the church yet. I'm more afraid of what he, how he's going to judge the church than how he's going to judge the world. I know he's going to, how he's going to judge the world. And if we don't take the last words of Yeshua, the Messiah, seriously, we're going to be in some big trouble. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And if we stop right there, that's intimidating. That's intimidating. That will cause you to be afraid of getting cussed out, getting beat up, getting spit on, getting the door slammed in your face, getting a dog sicked on you. But he didn't stop there. He says, remember, I am with you always. Even when you don't see me, even when you don't feel me, even though it, it seems like I'm not around, I'm there. Yeshua is always with us. He's in our hearts. He's with us. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, or even until the end of the world. It doesn't matter who's against us or who hates us. We and God make a majority. We and Jesus Christ make a majority. So if he's with us, we, have, we should have no fear. It's scary to step out and do something for the first time. But when you do it over and over and over, it gets so much easier. I used to be terrified going through the border because, you know, afraid of authority, you know, and what, what are they, what are they going to ask? And they ask a question, where are you from? Uh, uh, I just forgot where I'm from. Uh, you know, oh, now I'm, now I'm, now I'm st stammering. They're going to think something, I'm, I'm hiding something. Oh no. You know, they're going to drag me in and they're going to interrogate. But then, you know, I go through the border several times. I'm like, no big deal. Like they, you know, so now I go through the border. I don't even think twice. I'm not even scared at all. But at first I was scared to go back and forth through the border. Now I'm not. And it's the same with witnessing and reaching out to your lost loved ones. We assume, and I've made this mistake. We've assumed, well, they, they live in Canada. They've probably already heard the story of Jesus. They've probably all already heard the gospel. They probably don't, you know, they're not a religious person. They probably don't want to hear about it. How do you know? Did you ask them? Share it anyway. Yeah, share it anyway. True. But have you asked them? Don't assume that your friends or family or loved ones don't want to hear about the gospel. I'll tell you of a, of, of a, a situation that happened just this week. You know, some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came to uh, one guy and uh, said, hey, can we have a Bible study at your house on Tuesday? Okay, sure. Maybe he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart just to be, be polite. But at least the Jehovah's Witness got their foot in the door. And this was a person that I thought would just be like, nah, no thanks. I've heard that all before. So you don't know unless you try. You don't know unless you approach your friends, your family, your loved ones who's lost. And say, hey, can I share with you the change that has been made in my life? Why I'm a different person? Why I'm not reacting to the things of this world, you know, that other, the way other people are reacting? Why I have peace? Why I have joy? Why faith? And, 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 and meeting with other believers is so important to me. It may not be the reasons you think. Is it okay if I share that with you? Or, hey, why don't you come to a Bible study with me? Or, hey, can we have a private Bible study over coffee at your house? What's the worst that can happen? They say no. But does that stop a salesman? I mean, you know, like the, the carnies at the, the carnival, 
They're trying to get you to waste your money on a game that you're never going to win. After you say, no, 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 no thanks, they're like, oh, okay. No, they keep pestering. They keep going on. They're persistent. Squeaky wheel gets the oil. And sometimes you just say, all right, fine. Here's a dollar. Let me throw the stupid ball just so you'll shut up and I can go on and do something else. So even sometimes people may placate you just to get you to shut up. But at least you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel. What's the worst they can do? Say no? No thank you? Big deal. And I've just realized this week that I've assumed certain people don't want to hear about the gospel. I've assumed that they know they have an open invitation to come to our service. I've assumed that they you know, know what I believe and that's just not their thing. And so I've kept my mouth shut. I haven't put myself out there. And the Lord's really convicted me this week about that. And, and uh, well, well, what if I lose their friendship? Well, were they really your friends in the first place? What if they disown me as their family? Well, that's really a petty thing to, you know, break up a family over. That's not, uh, that's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. And I think of the famous atheist. Um, uh, Penn and Teller, you know, Penn Gillette, he's an atheist. He's a devout, strong atheist. But what he said really convicted me. He said, I have no respect for a Christian that won't try to witness to me. He said, if you, tr as a Christian, if you truly believe that I'm going to end up in hell, then you coming to witness to me shows me that you really care about me and about my, my eternal soul. You have some, and you know, you have angry atheists. Angry atheists bewilder me. Why are you angry? Why are you so mad at God that you claim doesn't exist? If you're angry at a God that doesn't exist, then what you're really telling me is that you're angry because God does exist. Because I've never seen you pitch a fit over Santa Claus. I've never seen you pitch a fit over, you know, Buddha. I've never seen you pitch a fit over the uh, you know uh, the uh, lep leprechauns or tooth fairies and you think they're all imaginary and they don't exist i've never even seen you get all bent out of shape because somebody believes in thor or zeus so why are you mad that somebody believes in the god of, of heaven and earth the god of israel your anger betrays that you really believe down deep inside you just won't admit it to yourself that's a little bunny trail there didn't mean to trail off but if you lose a family member because you witness to them, then that's their problem. Something's wrong with them. It's not something that's wrong with you. You're doing what the Lord commanded you to do. And you've got a bigger, greater family than your biological family. I mean, I, I love my sisters to death, but I don't talk to them very much. They've never been here to visit me. And I love them. But yet, sometimes I feel closer to you guys as my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do my biological family because I hardly hear from any of them. So that's why we're the family of God, and, and, and our family sometimes becomes more important than our biological family because they say blood is thicker than water. Well, Yeshua's blood is thicker than any human blood. And you think of people that go through troubles, trials, and tribulations together, the bond that is created. The, the, the army has a term for that. It's called a band of brothers. And you get a group of guys from all over the country who, who didn't know each other until they went through basic training together, didn't know each other until they formed a squadron and they're sent out on the front lines and they're in a foxhole 
and they have each other's backs. And in that foxhole, there's a grenade that gets lobbed in there. And a guy, without even thinking, jumps on it. Why? Because he would rather see his brothers go home to their family. And he would sacrifice his life willingly so his brothers can go to, to their families. That's not to sound Vin Diesel fast and furious, but that's family. You know, that's real family. And we're living in such a time that we still assume that people know the gospel, that they know about Jesus Christ. But they don't. You know why? Because we probably have five to six generations of unchurched people, people that have never set foot in a church, people that has never read a Bible, people that has never had Jesus shared with them. The only thing they know about Jesus is the misinformation they're getting from pop culture from TV shows and movies that make fun of us. TV shows and movies and songs that take what we believe out of context, and so they assume, well, they're just a bunch of crazy nutcases. But they haven't heard the truth because they haven't heard it from the horse's mouth. They haven't heard it from us. And I pray that God would give me a holy boldness, that I'd be more afraid of not witnessing to somebody than to witness to them. I've thought recently, too, of people who's come to me say, can you talk to so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll get around to it. And I didn't get around to it in time, and that person dies. Where are they? They're probably in hell. Whose fault is that? Might be mine because I didn't get off my butt and go to that person because I was scared or I was lazy, or I was complacent. So the question is, when I stand before God on Judgment Day, am I accountable for that person, regardless if they would have gotten saved or not? At least if I went, they would have known. At least if I went, they would have heard. How many people are in hell today, angry and mad at Christians, because you were my friend, but you didn't tell me? You went to church, but you never told me. You never warned me of this place. How much blood is going to be on our hands? I don't want to deal with that anymore. And time is growing short. We don't know how many days we have left on this earth, literally, because things are happening so fast in our world. And I pray that God would give us a love for people in our hearts, that we wouldn't be afraid to reach out, to hand them a track, to, to tell them our testimony. That's probably the best witnessing tool there is, is your own testimony, how you came to know the Lord, what the Lord's done for you. They don't care if you've memorized the Romans road or the Jerusalem's road or whatever formula of witnessing to people. Sometimes just your testimony alone could be enough to at least plant a seed and get them thinking. You're not responsible for them getting saved, but you're responsible for them to know. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility if they get saved or not, because the Holy Spirit will work on their heart. And I want to be a better evangelist, because I've been a sorry one for the last decade or so. And Donnie's testimony of witnessing to people over the phone, and it was like a business call. Well, Jesus has no business in that situation. Well, apparently he does, because a couple people got saved because of it. Praise the Lord. I didn't know that this sermon was going to go in this direction. And they said that I almost 
I didn't know that this sermon was going to go in this direction, and I don't mean to sound like that I'm getting on to you, getting on to you, or, or being harsh on you, or whatever. But we're literally talking about life or death situations here, people's eternal souls. What will it hurt to go to witness to that person in the hospital? What will it hurt to go to that person and invite them out for coffee, just so you can give them their testimony? You have nothing to lose. Literally, you have nothing to lose. And I got to practice what I preach because I'm not, I haven't been great at it. There's better evangelists than I ever could be. But I pray that God would give me the strength and the boldness to witness and to reach out. It's not the church's job to get people saved. It's not Harvest House's job to get people saved. It's your and I, our responsibility. Jesus didn't mention any church. He didn't mention any synagogue. He didn't mention any denomination or Jewish sect. He was telling his disciples individually, personally, you go, therefore, and make disciples. It's your job, your responsibility, not the pastor's job, not the rabbi's job, even though it's not beneath them and they're going to do it. But go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Powerful last words of Messiah Yeshua. And, and really, besides John 3.16, this is probably the second verse that's, that most people know. Is the Great Commission. And I remember one time I was online and there was this guy who felt led to go to an island and witness to a people group that has never heard Jesus. It was actually illegal to go there. But he went on a boat and he went there. What happened to the guy? He was martyred. He was killed because of what he did. Serves him right. He had no business shoving his religion down the other people's throats. He was obeying the Great Commission. And I heard Christians even criticize this guy. What? He was fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, he had no business interfering with their culture. Really? Who said? Jesus didn't say that. Yeshua didn't say that. Well, he threw away his life for nothing. No, he planted a seed, and his blood is watering that seed to this day. Jim Elliott did the same thing. He went to a, a, a cannibalistic society in his airplane to witness, and he was speared to death just nearly as soon as he got off that plane. Oh, failed mission trip. That didn't work. Oh, well, what do you know? It did work because his wife and other missionaries were able to go in after them and actually say, you know what, I forgive you for killing my husband. And the guy who killed Jim Elliott became one of the leaders in that, that people's church. Even if, even if you get rejected, you don't know what kind of seed you planted in a, in a person's heart. You don't know how that's going to haunt them when they're by themselves, alone in their beds, what you said to them. On the outside, it may have looked like you failed. But you planted a seed. And somebody else may come along and water it by witnessing a little bit more. And God will give the increase. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord, I sit here so ashamed. Oh, yes, I've, I've preached your word. Sure, sure, I've taught your word. Because I feel so comfortable and safe in the four walls of other believers. 
It's a whole different story when I'm out in public, and it is a little scary because I, I don't know these people. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know how they're, they're going to react. And Lord, you've taken every excuse away from us. I pray, Lord, that the burden you have yourself for the lost would be transmitted to our hearts. That, Lord, that the burden on our hearts would, would, would override the fear that we sometimes have in witnessing to other people. Give us tough skins, Lord. And let whatever rejection roll off our back, knowing that that's not the failure if we get rejected. That's not a failure. That's a win because it's at least a seed that has been planted. And we don't know what you're going to do with that seed. And that's not our responsibility. That's up to the Holy Spirit. Give us a love for people. Make it a reality in our hearts and mind that if they don't hear about Jesus, they could die lost because we didn't open our mouths, because we didn't go, we didn't say. That's part of what it means to love you. Sure, we can love you by doing our devotions in the morning. Sure, we can love you by reading our Bible. Sure, we can love you by singing hymns. Sure, we can love you by meeting in congregations together. But when we stick our necks out there, how much more can we love you when we stick our necks out there and risk being rejected, maybe even risk being physically harmed? Because we want to see people saved. We don't want to see people die lost and go to a devil's hell for all eternity. Sadly, there's churches that conveniently have said, oh, we don't have to worry about hell. It's not forever. They'll just get burned up and they'll never know. They won't exist anymore. That's just to ease their own guilty conscience because they themselves are not going out. May we never become like that, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for Moses' comforting words that you would protect Israel and by proxy protect us because we've attached ourselves to Israel. But that doesn't mean, since we're safe and protected, that we have a right to sit on our blessed assurance and just kick back and party. Lord, we are your army. We are your soldiers. We are your ambassadors. Teach us, motivate us, and help us to go. We can appreciate Moses' last words, but help us to obey Yeshua's last words, our rabbi, our rebbe, our Messiah, and take every opportunity that your Holy Spirit opens up to us as a, as a, a contact point to be able to touch someone's heart with the truth. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.